Welcome to another episode of Chapter Tactics, your Warmer 40k podcast that focuses on playing Warmer 40k competitively at all levels of the game. This month, we're taking it, or this month, actually, this week, oh, this month, we're in the new month of April, um, although we did have uh, an episode at the beginning of the month, which I completely forgot about. For those of you who caught that episode on the 1st of April, check it out. There's absolute gold information in there if you want to win every game of 40k you've ever played. There's good stuff in there. But That's pretty solid. It, it's good. It's good stuff. We have the evil ratio on. We made a guest appearance. Not to be confused with our lovable old fox, Gray Fox, Reese, the Robins. Hey, hey. But anyways, it's good fun. Good, it's good time. A lot of good information in that episode. However, this episode, we're going to take things in a different direction. Instead of going extremely hardcore, we're going to focus on fluff. That is the narrative that drives the game of Warhammer 40k. We're going to talk about why it's important to design rules around the fluff and why it's important for a game and for game design uh, for rules to represent the what they do in the fluff, why the fluff is important. And then we're going to talk a little bit about our own personal uh, responsibility or, or uh, history with the fluff of 40k. Um, every single person I've talked to who plays 40k has some knowledge of some faction or something about the IP that drew them in. It's it's very, very rare when I meet people who who have never gotten into the hobby aspect, although they do exist. However, I've never met anyone who hasn't gotten into the narrative aspect of 40k. Uh, there's just such a rich history there. I, I think truly that there are characters that um, are fit every personality type and for are for every form of 40k player. Um, so in that regards, it's a very intimate uh, relationship with people who play 40k. They have the, everyone has their own favorite books, their favorite factions, their favorite characters, uh, and then a lot of times that can turn into passion for the game itself. When uh, your character doesn't have the right rules or they underperform, uh, that can really remove your immersion from the game. So we're going to talk about all of that stuff. But before we jump into that, you can still go to FrontlineGaming.org where you can buy FLG gaming mats. We just released a couple designs, or one new design like a week and a half ago, Reese. Yeah, we sure did. Uh, it's very cool. Uh, Toxic Desert, and it's 20% off until this coming Wednesday. The, uh, what is that? That's the 8th? 8th, when, yeah. when we'll have a new mat. Of actually, a really super cool mat. I'm excited to show that one off, and that will be available on Wednesday. Yeah, absolutely. So we're still we're still cranking out the mats over at Frontline Gaming. You can also go to the secondhand shop. Uh, I went ahead and moved. Uh, we went ahead and moved all of the inventory uh, that we had left over the backlog new box GW inventory that we had uh, because obviously we can't have people come into the store and buy it. So we're moving it there. Uh, we're selling them at prices that we cannot advertise online. So check that out. Uh, go to the, and you can also find out some find some other secondhand shop goodies as well. Uh, you know, we're still taking in army lots. We're still selling them on eBay. So if you're looking for a good discounted alternative uh, to model, you know, uh, model that you want to work on convert in these times when you're doing your practicing social distancing, that is the place to go. Also, if you want to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash chapter tactics. Patrons get access to all sorts of good stuff, giveaways and whatnot. Uh, this month is going to be a single sheet of toilet paper given away to one lucky patron. That is uh, absolute gold. <laughs> just a sheet, like not natural yeah, roll. That, that took like two seconds to register, but that was a good one. <laughs> Un, unplied. Unplied. So, 
Anyways, uh, joking aside, I haven't decided the one for this month. Um, obviously, with GW uh, closing the warehouses um, and also uh, me kind of going through my stuff, it might just be something I have laying around at the house. Uh, you know, we'll see. Might be a special Pablo care package. Just a uh, shoe that I put together here. Uh, you know, it could it could <laughs> shoe. be. Just like, I don't know where the other one is. Here you go. Could be something from my Rhino collection. I, I am uh, uh, lovingly known as the Rhino in some circles because of my love for the animal the rhinoceros um and i have a, a rhino shelf with mm. dozens of rhino pictures and rhino miniatures it might be something from there um there's actually an ultramarines rhino on there too just you know, through anyways joking aside uh patrons get access to raffles they also get access to exclusive content and of course they ask questions that we answer at the end of every episode all right so let's go ahead and move into the nitty-gritty part of the topic and that is rules design so Reese, you early on in uh, your the playtesting for GW, and as everyone knows, Reese is a GW playtester. Um, we talked a lot of uh, game design theory. Now, um, this doesn't necessarily relate to uh, the game Warhammer 40k and your playtesting, um, because obviously you're under NDA and you can't talk about that. However, there was a lot of talk about uh, rules design and game design, and I've always wanted to revisit it um, because we had a lot of really good conversations. And uh, one of the conversations was in regards to giving rules to models based off of their appearance and based off of um, what they do fluff-wise, right? Or uh, specifically, um, or maybe not specifically, but uh, uh, in regards to uh, 8th edition, right? Uh, Because obviously there were a lot of rules revamped there as well. So in your experience as a playtester, Reese, how important is it to look at a rule and analyze it and take the narrative or the the fluff aspect of the model or unit or faction in question uh, and design it for the for the game. I think it's probably the most important step in the process because um, competitive gamers, myself, I include myself in this, often forget the fact that we represent no more than twenty percent of the total gaming populace, right? Like probably less than that. And that the other 80 to 90% of the people playing the game, they're approaching it almost as an RPG-like experience. So it's critically important for the health of the game for the model to reflect on the tabletop reasonably what it looks like and what it does in the lore. Uh, because that's the way that the, the average gamer is interacting with the game most of the time. Like the most hours that they put in is working on their army or reading reading the lore, reading the, the codexes, etc. So when they do get to play, which if you get to play once a week, you're lucky. My estimation is that the average player plays once, twice a month. Um, they want it to reflect all that buildup, all that, that time thinking about it. And it's really disappointing for most people, even, even a hardened tournament gamer, it's really disappointing when their favorite model or unit or whatever doesn't live up to their lore to a reasonable degree right like we've all been there like or you have a model or a unit that you love the way they look and you don't use them because they're not good on the table etc or they just don't align with what you think they should do so i personally think it's the most important part of a tactile game like a miniatures game that uh, the rules reflect the aesthetics and and background of the unit yeah i agree uh peter do you have anything else to add to that 
No, I mean that's that's everything. Um, and even for the like a lot of the competitive players, um, um, we I, I'll say we because I, I do immerse myself more in that side. Uh, like that is a big part of it as well for us, right? Like you want you want to have some kind of connection to your army. You want to. Like when I picked up Custodes, it was because I loved their lore. I was waiting for them to come out, and I wanted them to play like they were like they were written in the lore, like these unstoppable beasts. Like one guy can take on ten marines, and initially that's kind of how they felt. Um, so that felt really good on, on their initial release, and it's the same like across the board. Um, the, like the most common complaints you see when someone uh, talks about like a unit being underpowered, it's often uh, like the reasoning behind they feel it, them feeling it that way um, is you know well in you know in the lore it's this or it's that like it um, in this book uh, this Moloch killed you know twenty marines with no problem and in the game you're lucky if he gets two and then he gets shot off the board right so um, it is it's it's an integral part of the game and yeah like I. I get a huge kick um, out of units that play and like have rules that kind of define them. Yeah, and, and not only that too, um, but from a competitive standpoint, it also affects uh, usage rates and um, the armies that people are running. Uh, to give just one quick example, Grey Knights. Every time Grey Knights have been even moderately competitive, uh, with where they had good rules and they could do all tournaments, they've they absolutely blow up. Uh, Grey Knight Terminators and Grey Knight Strike Swords were sold out for for months. They they were still sold out um, even up until GW closed their warehouse down. But I imagine the Grey Knight Terminator would still be sold out now. Um, and they they were sold out. I remember when the LVO was happening. Yeah, good I, luck I getting a Paladin, was, right? Yeah, like... specifically the Grey Knight Paladin, which is um, I would argue that Terminators are in the top five coolest unit that new players gravitate towards. I know I myself as a new player. Uh, definitely wanted to make like an all Terminator army. And then a lot of newer players that I talked to when I was helping people build lists or when I was helping people buy or sell used models, Terminators were number one on the list. They're, they're always a good seller and they've always notoriously had the worst rules, but they sell well because, you know, they're, they're cool. They're just the idea, the fluff behind a Terminator, this space, super space marine in essentially a tank, a mobile tank suit that can teleport in and rain death you know, on the enemy that that appeals to a lot of people. Uh, so the Space Marine Terminator, and specifically the Grey Knight Terminator, which is a supercharged psychic variant of the already cool Terminator, um, is, is appealing. Uh, so when you get uh, a unit or specific faction that appeals to a broad group of players um, in competitive 40k, they can easily become they can easily overcentralize the meta as opposed to like the Bark Star in Seventh Edition. Which, although it was good, didn't really appeal to a lot of people because it was just forty space wolves or forty wolf dogs um, mm. riding around. Yeah. You know, it it, it, it felt it, was... it felt absurd. You're like, yeah. why are the, why are these wolves the most powerful thing? Because the rules don't aren't doing what they were clearly yes. intended to do. Yeah. So it's like and... instead of a, a badass space wolf wolf guard terminator who's like three hundred years old and the veteran of countless wars and he looks cool uh, and all this stuff wolf joe you got yeah you got his 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 pet dog is the, yep. the star of the show and it, it it really reduces your immersion yeah and, and if you compare it to uh army that was arguably less competitive but way more used uh the space marine battle company in some edition um space marines obviously really popular a battle company so an entire company of space marines 
It's already very fluffy, very cool, uh, just written into the name. Um, that was people were using Space Marine Battle Companies way more than the Bark Star uh, or any other other Space Marine Imperium options, um, and that's because I I argue uh, because they're not only more accessible because more people had Space Marines, but also because it, it just it feels better to put on the tabletop. It's from a fluff perspective. Um, so uh, I might be wrong. Um, obviously, I don't have any super concrete data to to um, back up those claims. Um, but, you know, in the past, historically, if you look at 5th edition, if you look at 7th edition, if you look at now, currently, whenever a cool faction has good rules, they definitely start selling out and they definitely start getting used more. Yeah, I mean, anecdotally, you're 100% correct. And when you ask people, like, what did you like about Battle Company? And for those of you listening who don't remember, Battle Company is what it sounds like. You put on, like, a full company of, of Marines. And even though, like, it didn't play, like, the lore in regards to it was a Horde army instead of an Elite army, it was close enough to the, to fulfilling, like, checking the boxes in your head of, like, oh, this is a Battle Company. I read about this. It's in all the books. And it was reasonably good on the tabletop as well that it was massively popular, right? And so it's more important to try and come closer to hitting the mark of matching the lore than it is not because it's you're going to sell more models, make more people happy, and more people are going to have be enjoying themselves playing the game. I mean, so, you can use, uh, like with raw numbers, you can look at Space Marines in 8th edition. Um, like their initial codex, they made up about 5% of the meta. Um, they were considered really um, lackluster after the after more and more codexes came out, right? And the rules kind of evolved. Um, and you ended up in a place where, um, like, I remember when the Death Watch codex came out, all, multiple people said, this is how Marines should feel like, well, like when you play Death Watch veterans um, as a whole. Um, and then the Space Marine codex comes out, um, it jumps to like 25% of the meta, not just because Iron Hands were, were you know, quote unquote busted. Um, it was at almost 25% before the Iron Hands book came out, just because people like to play Marines again, um, because they felt like Marines. They were very elite. They killed stuff. Um, but it, before that, that supplement came out, um, they, like they were, they weren't toolboxy. Like they had all the tools, but you couldn't take them all out at once. Um, so that led to like this really flavorable thing where you were trying to build a, uh, an army that, um, could do everything, but you often just didn't have enough points, which is like what an elite army should be. Yeah. Um, and so uh, this actually brings me to the, the second point. So obviously uh, Reese made a really great point with the, uh, rules and fluff being combined to have people personally connect with their armies and factions, which is extremely important for the health of the game. The second thing, it's also healthy to for teaching people how to play the game. Um, so I'm going to give two examples. One is a Magic the Gathering example that I think really, really encompasses why that that's important, that concept is important. And the other is a 40k example that I use personally um, that I think anyone who plays 40k can really relate to. The magic example is simply this. Mark Rosewater, famous magic gathering game designer, uh, he had trouble with a card that playtesters were having a hard time understanding what it did. Uh, The rules text was written out. It was like a lion card. Um, It didn't make any sense. And essentially what it was, it was a Trojan horse type effect. It was a card that you gave your opponent and then you got uh, troops or soldiers out of it, similar to a Trojan horse. Um, But the card was a lion. It wasn't a horse. And the playtesters just had a hard time figuring out 
so much so that they wanted to scrap the design. And so he changed the name of the card and the picture of the card to a, a horse and called it the Acroan horse and gave it a Trojan horse aesthetic. When he did that, the playtesters immediately, um, they, they had a control group of new playtesters. They immediately got it. They're like, oh, this card is great. I get it. It's like a Trojan horse. And that's because the card's aesthetic matched the card's rules. And so in 40k, there's another very specific example that I have that's uh, the Demacaron. So the Demacaron is a Forgeworld Tyranid model. In 7th edition, and I think in 8th edition, I'm not sure, um, because it's so bad, it's not a very popularly used model, uh, it had the ability to fly and move over units. It could only move 6 inches, though. So in 7th edition, it could fly over units, but it could only move 6 inches. And every time I saw Demacaron on the tabletop, there were constantly arguments about how it worked. Like, oh, it can jump over units, but it only moves six inches. Well, what happens if I put it on this ruin, this building here? Then does it count? You know, there were just always arguments. And so I always had to explain people whether I was in the game or not. Oh, that thing can fly. It's just, I know it doesn't have the fly keyword. It doesn't, but it just, it can fly. That's what it does. It can like jump so high. I know it only moves six inches, but that's, it just, that's what it does. Right. But if they had given that model, I theorize that if they'd given that model wings, uh, or or made it look like it was jumping or a flying model, I don't think it would have confused as many people. And that's ultimately because it comes down to if a model can fly and you create a special rule for flying things, it's going to make people to understand that rule so much easier than if the model doesn't have wings or if it doesn't have some sort of flight capabilities, right? Like if you were to assign the the jet rules, the, the what are they called? The, I, I completely waffling on the name of the like, fly like, keyword or the flyer the flyer yeah the flyer key role but specifically what like wraith fighters have and stuff um yeah the hard to hit and um, hard to hit, yes whatever Super I can't remember the rest of it yeah well anyways if you were to give that to a model like like if you were to create a new model like a special grav tank um that could, that is supposed to be the same thing it can fly around however it, it doesn't. It doesn't look like it because it's a tank. Um, I would imagine that would confuse people if you didn't have those specific keywords. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? I know I'm yeah. kind of I'm, I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, and I'll just bring it all back. Um, so it's important for teaching uh, 40k players, both new and old, new rules and uh, rules to play the game. Uh, and so it's human nature to make connections to things that they understand from previous games. Uh, and so one common game design technique is to piggyback off of other games and rules that other people see in games um, that that uh, make it easier for their player base to understand. So, Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, I totally agree with you. Yeah, like if someone I'll, can look at something and intuitively understand it, then you, that's a huge win. And I'll say that um, there's a really good article that Goonhammer put out about two weeks ago. They interviewed James Hewitt, who uh, was one of, used to be a rules writer for GW, um, and he actually talks a lot about this. Um, when it came, because he was there when Age of Sigmar uh, was released, um, he helped with Blood Bowl, Adeptus Titanicus, and a, a number of others. And um, in general, at least while in his time there, he said, um, like the way they built rules was that it always started with model design. So the artists would get together first, and they might have like Jervis Johnson or something in the room, um, and he might be like, "Well, I like they're high elves. We want them to be able to kind of be like this." And they'd be like, "Well, wouldn't it be cool if we gave them a, like a giant goat with a mountain on its back?" And then that would get 
So they like the artists would come up with an idea uh, if it was something new, like if it wasn't something that was an established canon, um, and then that would get sent to the rules writers after. So that uh, with like this is what it looks like, this is what it's uh, going to do. You have to build rules around what this looks like, um, and that and you're right, like it it helps uh, immerse a person, people it helps a person understand uh, like uh, what something's capable of um, by by doing it that way, by starting with like the big picture and then moseying on down. Uh, yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Um, and that's also, I think, one of the big gripes I've seen um, with the Warhammer 40k rule set from people who aren't as familiar with it. And that's that, like, for example, the D6 system is so limited that you can't have uh, you can't have layers upon layers of uh, rules that represent fluff. For example, Land Raiders uh, and then the Spartan Achilles like tank, they all have a two up save, right? Um, but one is definitely significantly tougher than the other, right? And so, you know, there, you see a lot of gripes with the D6 system. Um, it's specifically that regards because of that that uh, relationship. So, um, moving on to another part of rules design and how it pertains to um, units, and that's the idea of a power level. And so, when you're designing unit, let's say uh, it's a character, like a super awesome character that everyone loves um why do you think it is that gw does i don't want to say a bad job but i feel like a lot of their characters are hit and miss there are very very few characters that just feel right you put them on the tabletop they feel like they're how they're supposed to be fluff wise but they're all they're not too powerful but they're definitely powerful enough um and a lot of in my opinion a lot of characters in the 40k universe are either really really underpowered um, or they're they're really really overpowered, or they feel overpowered and um, aren't very fun to play against. So I'm looking specifically at like Gilliman, Magnus, Mortarian, um, and then on the flip side, uh, most of the Bedabwar characters, which have a ton of fluff around them, um, but they all have these generic power swords and abilities that don't do anything and are a bit overcosted. Um, so why do you think that is? Why is designing a specific character hero model uh, you know, the rules for it. Why do you think that's so hard to get right uh, to either of you? Um, in my opinion, uh, I think the biggest part of it is that a lot of people imagine that in the process of game design that you're exhaustively uh, trying out every option and you're running it through multiple iterations and really like deep diving into it the way that we do when we're reading the codex, right? But the thing you have to remember, and I say this all the time, is that the material is being created at the same pace at which it is coming out. So, I mean, like, think about that for a minute. We're getting material coming out so rapidly, right? There's not some time warp in which the game developers uh, get more time to test things than we do then 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 they're coming out right it's the same team writing all this stuff so i think a big part of it is that in this for the sake of expediency and, and getting things out quickly um that they're not able to really like rigorously take a, an idea and run it through as many iterations as i think some people would like and this is true in video games too right like yeah a lot of times they release something and then they wait to see how it how it performs and then they they hot they hot patch it, right? Like, so th this is very normal. I'm not putting GW down at all. 
Um, but I, I just, when, when someone has their favorite faction, like let's say it's chaos, like a lot of our buddies and they like to the finest detail, analyze everything for them to do that. It takes months of intense focus, right? Like when a new codex comes out, usually we don't see what's good or bad or broken or whatever for a while. Like sometimes it takes a very long period of time for like the super combo to reveal itself. So <clears throat> the, the, the game developers, in my opinion, they do their best to put out a character that's flavorful and good. And the playtesters do their best to help facilitate that process. But there just isn't enough time to, to, to go into it, to deep dive into it as much as you would really like. And I think that's why you have the disparity between some of the characters. And then again, you're also worked into that, like, I don't want to call it a trap. You're, you're worked into that limitation that wouldn't it be awesome if this model could move faster? Or wouldn't it be awesome if this model had a ranged attack? That would really round them out and make them super like appealing. But you can't because the model physically isn't modeled that way. Right, so you have to work with what they're equipped. They're equipped with a power sword and a a bolt pistol. Well, that that really limits your options, unless you come up with some, you know, orbital strike or you know something that's some some rules mechanic that's that's outside of the the model's specific physical limitations. So, kind of a long-winded answer. I hope it it helped, but um, it, it's really tough to get it all done expediently um, and 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 balance it all um, with with limited re time resources. Peter. And it's all well. I mean, I, how am I supposed to follow up with the guy that actually tests the <laughs> game? But answer, yeah. uh, it's a really good answer. Um, the one thing I would say is it's um, it is very difficult a to balance you know hundreds of characters uh, at the same time, um, but b um, like Hero Hammer is a real thing and it can get out of control real fast. We've seen it in previous editions. Um, uh, if you if you want to go to like Warhammer Fantasy Battle, I think it was like Warhammer Fantasy Sixth Edition was a hundred percent Hero Hammer. There were guys with like thirty attacks if you set them up with the right relics. Um, so that's not fun either. So you, like that's always going to be something you have to be worried about when you're balancing around like a single character. Like how many points are you going to make that guy? And uh, like what's the feel good feel bad about playing against that? Um, look at Magnus. Magnus is uh, I think a really good. Um, uh, like t a talking point for game design around like a f almost 500 point character. Um, it feels real good when he works and it feels real bad when he dies turn right. one. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, but that's kind of like how you have to balance something that's that powerful. Um, I think that one thing that's happened over the course of this edition is we've seen like um, the the concepts of rules design starting uh, like start to expand. So if you look at like those Badab War characters you brought up, most of them are terrible because they're Forge World uh, index rules, and they were made like they're still like from index, so they're they're two and a half years old, um, three years old really. And like back then, there wasn't as much of this like what can we what can we do like how do we ex what how do we get around the boundaries of what we currently have um, to to make them more flavorful um, because I, I like. I love my Karchardons, and if Tyberos the Red Wake could be the monster he is in their books, oh, oh, GW. He's such a beast, dude. He has, GW. Chain, he has chainsaw hands chainsaw with lightning hands. claw fingers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and so good. 
And I mean, like, in Robbie McNiven's books, there's at one point he, he, like, walks into a Tyranid birthing pod, just walks into it and just starts killing everything inside. Like, it's so badass. And it's, like, huh, if you could make him, like, Ragnar, Blackmane, like, Ragnar, I love. 120-point character, a billion attacks, but yeah. three-plus armor, four-plus invuln. So, like, if you get enough attacks, like, he'll, he will die. But, like, it's exactly how you kind of picture him. And he gives this big, like, heroic intervention bubble that's, you know, not the norm for, like, a, a character. But it gives him an, a rule that makes him a little more flavorful. Um, and you feel like you're playing, a, like, a heroic character when you play something like that. Um, and that just kind of shows how the game has evolved rules-wise so far. And um, that's where I, I hope we continue. And sure, you're still saying that you're going to have duds. Um, you're going to, you know, have that one guy that you're like, Ugh, well, you know, we just didn't have enough time, like we said, to to balance it out. So he, there's, you know, Jimmy McGee. Uh, we forgot all about him. Nobody uses him anyway. Like, uh, what's his face? Captain Tycho from Blood Angels. That's oh a, ter- that's a <laughs> you, terrible that- rule set. But he's dead. So who cares? Who runs him? He's dead. Like... <laughs> Um, so I kind of have a, a follow-up slash segue here, and that's, um, I have a theory. There is, um, a certain amount of design space economy or equity that you have, uh, as a designer. Um, the reason why Magic Gathering, for example, is such a very, such a very successful game is because they have such huge design space. Every time they want to create a new set, they just create an entire new world with its own rules and with its own history and its own characters, and then boom. Um, and, it, you know, they're, they're, they have a lot of design space to work with. And 40K, I think, has a lot more design space. I think GW did a really good job with the stratagems in in expanding their room for design uh, in rules because the stratagems are just endless. You can make all sorts of really cool, you know, things that don't feel too overpowered uh, just with the stratagems alone in terms of design, rules design. However, sometimes I think specifically the space marine characters um they've exhausted their design space there um obviously they created primaris versions um which you know gives you more room for design you give them an extra attack an extra wound a cool model maybe another rule boom they're done so they they bought themselves breathing room uh with the primarising of the space marine models however do, do you do you get the sense that maybe they're reaching the limit for design space for uh, space marine characters, and that if they went if they went into other factions, specific named characters for Necrons, Tyranids, you know, etc., um, they would have more design space there, and they could, you could have more fulfilling characters. Or uh, do you think it's a part of the or just a limit of the system itself? I mean, there's only so many things you can do, right? Like a character is usually going to be one of two things um, or usually a combination of both they are uh, dealing damage themselves like Ragnar Blackmane is an excellent example if you can deliver him into combat risk reward he's a blender and it's very satisfying right Um, or they're a force multiplier and they're they're enhancing the abilities of nearby models or they're uh, debuffing the abilities of of, uh, enemy models Right, and that's that's pretty much it, right? Like, that's that's really like the, the levers you have to pull with a character model that's going to fit and be thematic. So, <clears throat> within that scope, right? Like, how many ways are there to make a character good at killing stuff, right? Like, they punch them or they shoot them or some combination, or they shoot mind bullets at them, or they you know do orbital bombardment, like some other like off-board 
type deal. <clears throat> and then there's, you know, the other levers you have to pull is how fast are they or how resilient are they or how punchy are they? And there's only so far you can go in there, especially in a D6 system. So yeah, I agree with you, uh, Pablo, like without creating a completely bespoke rule, <clears throat> something that's totally unique, there's not that much room to maneuver, right? Like we're at a point where you have a character like Ragnar that's doing a million attacks and that's exciting. Um, but just go back in time and compare him. Go look at a Tyranid character. Look at the Swarm Lord with his five <laughs> yeah. attacks. And he's supposed to be like toe to go toe to toe with um, the, the, the baddest Space Marine characters. And now it's not even remotely close, right? Yeah. Well, so, now an Intercessor Sergeant has as many attacks as Swarm Lord. So. And could, and like with a Thunderhammer, like it's not, it's not inconceivable that he kills him in one round of attacks. Yeah. Right? And so, yeah, like it's like there's there's not too much more room to move without going into like absurdity. So you're going to start seeing clones like to a certain, to a greater or lesser degree. But I mean, that's, that's not really that bad of a, a thing considering that each of these characters is only available to certain subsets of a faction. It's really not that bad. Okay. It's like, Oh, I got my, I got my DPS guy. Cool. I got my tank guy. Cool. I got my force multiplier guy. Cool. And it's fine. Right. Like just put a little spin on it, uh, make it slightly unique and then make it available to a new faction and, and everyone's happy. Yeah. I, I think that's a great idea. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I think the only way they re- like, I'm sure that there, there's somebody out there that's got a better idea, but I think the only way that you're really going to see a lot more like really crazy uh, changes would be to use like a, a Magic the Gathering term. Like if you see some kind of like palette crossing, um, like if you see uh, like a Space Marine character that's that has abilities that are more reminiscent of, say, like an Admech or a, like a Necron character. Um, that would really be it. I don't think you go. I don't know if they can go too much deeper with what they've already got. Um, and what you mean by palette crossing is, um, in 40k terms, uh, a faction has a very specific uh, set, set rule set or uh, rules that it like does way of well. playing. Yeah. Yeah, like like way of playing, um, flavor, whatever you want to call it. Uh, for example, Grey Knights are psychers. They are good at psychic stuff, um, whereas Tau are not. Uh, so a palette crossing would be like giving the Tau a psyker or something to do something that that um, normally kind of like breaks the rules of the Tau faction. Um, they do something in the psychic phase. Uh, yeah, give them be, an anti-psychic drone right. or right. a yeah. close combat, like a close combat monster. That's yeah, like, like right. yeah, like a like a far sight equivalent um, that they've yes. kind of already done. But that's really that's really the only only place you like you find you'll get to a point where that's really the only place you can go. Right? You yeah. can say. Like here's this really awesome uh, named tech marine that's not Iron Father Pharaohs that because that actually buffs vehicles um, more like a Necron uh, would like maybe has some kind of reanimation protocol ability um, on something like you know what I mean like that that's yeah. really what you're looking at. And yeah, the thing like, is like I don't I don't think because like a lot of people are like oh but then everything starts to feel the same, but it's like you have to understand that if you want to continuously expand that's inevitably going to happen. Because you're you're restricted by the limitations of the math of the core game mechanics, right? There's just not that much more stuff you can do, and it's like who cares? Let every faction do everything, but to a, a greater or lesser degree, right? Tau don't have you know El, Eldrad Ulthran level psychic powers, but if they had an anti-psychic drone, that'd be really cool. It let them participate in that phase of the game, and it would add a lot of spice. I don't think anyone's losing anything if you did that. Yeah, I agree. Um, 
that's a this is all really good conversations here. I'm sure we could go on for hours and hours on the same topic. Uh, rules design and game design is um, a topic I'm personally I've always been really passionate about. I have a lot of uh, close friends that um, are game designers or or some some mold variety of game designers um, that work on companies or specific games. Um, so I always get kind of get drawn into these conversations. Uh, but I we do have to move on. Unfortunately, uh, those were the the main points for of conversation for this topic. Uh, now I want to talk about the actual fluff of 40k. So, what are well? First off, a question for both of you, and then I guess I'll answer this. Um, what are like a couple factions that really drew you into the game 40k? Are there any stories that you liked? Um, and what's your kind of relationship for that faction to the game itself? Do you do you still try to use that faction in games of 40k or would you prefer to or not or whatever um, either one of you want to start go reese the faction that drew me in i told this story many times but the, the faction that drew me in um when i was just a kid i was visiting my family in cambridge england went into a games workshop my cousins who are my age like we're like best buddies they're, they're more like my brothers they took me into the games workshop and it was like my eyes, you know, like exploded. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. But the faction that drew me in was uh, Dark Angels. And back then, especially the Deathwing, they had more of a Native American theme feel to it. And um, that's always something that's been fascinated. Like my, my, my grandparents, it's a big part of my family uh, anyway, but my grandpa always taught me about it. So when I saw it and I saw the original Dark, uh, Dark Angels captain with the feathers and the Deathwing, and they were, you know, had all this like cool iconography. It just like it hit the button for me. Like, I bought it. I bought the captain on the spot. Went painted it terribly that night with testers, you know, gloss enamel paint. And uh, I still have the model uh, to this day. But that that gra- like it like just grabbed me, right? Like the lore. It's like oh, they went to this planet and they got these, you know, they drew from these people that were kind of, you know, Native American themed thematically. Um, and then they brought that with them. They were the Deathwing, and they're they're super awesome. And they fought, you know, Gene Steelers and all this to the death. And it was just so super cool. Um, it really, really, really captured my imagination. Now, of course, they've taken it in a the, the Dark Ages have gone in a totally different direction. Um, one of the reasons why I don't play them anymore, and one of the reasons why I made a whole Native American themed uh, Space Marine chapter of my own. They're all painted in the Deathwing uh, beige um, color scheme, but um, that that was it for me. That hit all the right buttons. Space, uh, you know, like Cherokee warriors sounded just mm. too cool, for, too cool to me to resist as a young man. Nice. Yeah. Uh, and real quick, Reese, uh, uh, were there any stories in the 40k narrative that really like drew you into it too, or any books that you read or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, tons, right? But. Yeah. Uh, the the my hands down without question favorite uh, books in the lore are Aaron Dimsky Bowden's Night Lords trilogy. Oh, um, I'm a I, like I'm a big reader. I read so constantly, good. and uh, I, I was an English major in school. Not that that makes my opinion any more or less valuable than anybody else's. Everybody likes what they like, and that's totally cool. But from somebody that studied literature, those books are very very well structured and well written. The characters arc. There's it's a plot twists. It's not just bolter porn. Like mm. they are so freaking good. Um, and whenever I talk to people that are just kind of getting interested in the 40k universe, and I know that they like to read, I always aim them at those books. I'm like, you're gonna like 
the bad guys, even though they've done nothing redeeming. In fact, they become worse. That takes a truly talented writer to, to make to make that happen. So th- those are definitely my favorite. Yeah, ADB Aaron Dembski Bowden. Uh, he's just so good at writing like a tragic villain. Um, yes, across the board, he does it so well. Um, I lo- like. Yeah, I'm 100% behind you in that. Everything he writes is is pure gold, in my opinion. Yeah, he's so talented. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, uh, uh, Peter, same question. Um, yes. <laughs> um, so I got into 40k like later in my life. I was already in my my twenties. I was playing Warhammer Fantasy Battle first, um, because that was the bigger thing in my in my area at the time. I remember seeing some guys play. I'd been invited out to play uh, after playing board games with a friend. He said I'd be interested. I played orcs to start because I thought that was kind of cute when he explained the lore. I was like, oh, man, this sounds crazy. Went into the store to buy an army for my first time, and I saw Lizardmen, and I was like, oh, my God. I can be Aztec dinosaur men riding dinosaurs. (laughs) I'm in. I don't even care. And I probably – I think I dropped – I dropped about eight hundred, nine hundred dollars on Lizardmen and just went like balls deep crazy. Um, played that for a while. I saw some people playing forty k. I decided to diversify my my uh, my experience, and uh, so I started talking to my buddy. I was like, "Tell me about forty k. What's going on here?" He he uh, ran the local game store, so he was kind of explaining some of the different factions. Um, the inner weeb in me uh, at first gravitated to Tau because I was like, I can play like tiny Gundams. I'm okay. I will play tiny Gundam. So I picked up the codex. I was trying to read through it. Um, a really close friend of mine uh, played them and he was trying to explain them to me. And he's like, don't, don't buy them. Like their rules are super old and uh, some of them don't even work anymore. Cause this was like, uh, like fourth to fifth edition so like they had a really old book at the time some of the rules like didn't even function any longer because that was back in the day when books just didn't get released sometimes for an edition or two he and uh i was like well i don't know like i really like playing baby gundams this sounds super awesome and as i was saying that i saw the space wolf codex and i looked at my buddy who ran the shop he was behind the counter and i was like why didn't you tell me about the werewolf viking I just I need to know what you thought was wrong with me that I wouldn't love <laughs> werewolf vikings. And so I bought a giant space wolf army because like just the idea of uh, space werewolf vikings riding giant cyber wolves uh, like it appealed to me on every level. Um I was such a fan of mythology back in the day so you'd, I like gleaned a little bit on the Ragnar story and I'm like well this you know what this is just yeah, Thor, except they made our Jack Rockfist Thor, but the story is Ragnar's, and I'm in. Like, and then like Lucas the Trickster is Loki. You got me. I like it's. This is so easy, man. Like that's like I'm very easy to please. I just I love my space werewolf Vikings. Um, later on, a couple months later, as I got more and more into the lore, I started reading the books. Um, I read about custodies. And so I went in one day and I was like, where's the custodies army? I want to start that. And my buddy Craig was like, um, "That I don't think that's a thing. Like, I'll look for you. I'll see if they have stuff, but I don't think it's a thing. And I was so depressed because I just, I loved every concept of these like emperor's bodyguards that were perfect in every way and were in mourning. And I was like, why aren't, there's 10,000 of them. Why isn't there an army? So um, at the end of 7th, when they released the uh, custodies box set, like I was 
I you couldn't uh, like you couldn't uh, stop me. I was in that I was in the store within like minutes of it opening the day it was released. I'm like these are mine. I'm buying as many of them as I can. So now I have fifty sisters of silence. Um, <laughs> and your day will come. Your day will come. Crossed fingers, otherwise they're going to become like order of the martyred quiet girls or something. Um, and I'll do some conversions, but but for now. I'm I'm waiting for my day. Uh, my I have so many sisters of silence, but I also have a lot of custodies. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Long story short, I'm easy to please. I just love my heroes. Love my hero hammer. There's a small part of me that that's a weeb that uh, is super also into Gundams. So this episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends you new cartridges, so you never have to think about ink. Save up to 50%. You'll pay less than $5 a month for ink and never run out again. Find out if your printer is eligible and enroll today at hpinstantink.com. Conditions apply. For details, visit hp.com slash instantinkspotify. I think you and all the rest of us. <laughs> like, who oh, yeah, for sure. Who doesn't like giant robots? Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember uh, Zoids back in the day and Gundams, of course. Obvi- anyways, um, so I, I think it's really cool, actually, that, that GW does that, uh, where they kind of take spins on classic stories and throw them in and incorporate them into their lore. Um, it's why the, the 18 Space Marine Legions are so relatable, because each of them does take bits of lore from other you know parts of human history or whatever other lores um and and makes them their own uh and so it makes all of the space marine legions in particular very very relatable uh and makes the ip and the fluff very relatable too um which i think is also part of the reason why space marines uh and chaos space marines get so many cool rules and characters it's just because they're the most relatable and most fleshed out factions in the entire 40k world right uh, they're changing that a little bit uh, with the, uh, the the gangs, Necromunda gang mm-hmm. stories and stuff like that. They're introducing these more colorful characters um, that aren't necessarily, you know, 40K focused. Um, but that's that's the, the IP, something else entirely. Um, but going back to my personal experience, uh, basically, I started playing a garage hammer with my buddy Hunter, um, who had a space marine army. It was specifically an ultramarines army. And he just gave me this like box full of like broken marine bits. And was like, here, learn these guys because everyone else wants to play a specific army. And he had like Hunter had like maybe six or seven armies in his garage, and we all kind of like picked and choose. And I was the last one to come in, so I got, um, you know, the last army. And so I looked at him and I was like, you know what, I kind of like these guys. I'm gonna make the best of it. Um, so I started reading about the Ultramarines, and I'm like, they're really cool. Uh, you know, I'm on board with the whole stoic you know, lawful, if you go by the letter of the law, there's a way to handle any possible situation. Loved all that. Loved the idea of Calgar, this like noble diplomat soldier who who ruled over an entire system, um, super hyper intelligent, also very, you know, uh, martial, and, you know, love the whole Ultramarines aesthetic. Uh, but I didn't really get into 40k lore until I read the uh, 30k novels by uh, specifically I read Graham McNeil's the very first one Graham McNeil's False Gods, which um, I I still state that it, it's one of the best books that you can read. Period. Not just a 40k book, but it's just a, such a really really good book. 
it draws you in with its very first line, which is, uh, I was there the day the Emperor died, which is still giving me chills. Um, you know, or I was there the day Horus killed the Emperor. So, 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 so good. Um, but uh, the 30K novels were really what drew me into uh, 40K, which is really funny because they're obviously they're very different eras, they're very different games, and I never actually played 30K. Um, but what 40K did for me was it gave me uh, the characters and the the stories that I needed to keep just playing 40k, right? Because I couldn't, I didn't want to play 30k, um, and I've always, I was one of those people who has a hard time relating the fluff to uh, the rules themselves, um, just because I feel like if you focus too much on the fluff, it can affect your ability to win a game. Um, so I do tend to kind of like distance them, and what that happens specifically with games is I just get out of the i just remove myself from the game um it's kind of like uh what i've done with specific games that i've since dropped um so i I always try to consume them separately uh but uh, i still stuck with space marines because 30k obviously had space marines and then they started introducing the all the 30k like the mark 3 armors and the all the forge world stuff was you know both 30k and 40k compatible and so that all kind of kept me into it um and so, you know, Space Marines have always been my, my first and only love. And the Horus Heresy novels have just always done a great job of um, of drawing me in. Also, Hero Hammer is awesome. The Primarchs have been super cool. Um, the, I, I just I really want them to release more Primarchs. Every GW release, I see people clamoring for different releases. And mine is always the same. It's always, give me a new Primarch. Yeah, because they I come mean, from everybody. That's yeah. what everybody wants in the whole flipping yeah. world. And I don't hey, know if you know you've... what? If if my pet theory and I have no validation, no, this is strictly just my imagination. If they're waiting to release them because they've been doing so well that their stock is up so much that they don't want to, you know, blow their load in one year because it'd be really hard to replicate that. And if you understand um, the way publicly traded companies work, you don't want to do that. Um, if we're going into this recession, <laughs> and it looks like we are. We might see some Primarchs, baby. <laughs> you might Eliminate see a, a full Lemonade from <laughs> yeah. Um, like if you watch those previews and you and you if you tried to follow the like the Twitch chat on them, it was like ninety nine percent people just yelling Primarch names. Show yes. me blank, like right. Uh, and yeah, it's uh yeah, that's a thing. Yeah. Well, one thing, and this is kind of a, a quick segue. Um. One thing that uh, I think they're doing a really good job of setting up as a company is the uh, books, or not the books, the uh, shows, the Stardays um, show, the shows on Netflix, the Space Marine focused shows. Mm-hmm. That's going to draw in a ton of new people. And lo and behold, when those people get into uh, 40K, play the actual tabletop game, their army that they're probably going to gravitate to towards Space Marines is going to be good. They're going to have good rules, they're going to have good characters that you can kind of back into. And um, like them or not, they are really powerful. I think that the space brain rules are really, really well written. Short of a few really bad outliers. And even then, the the rule itself might be overpowered, but the way the rule's written, what it represents fluff-wise, um, kind of like what the aesthetic it's trying to provide, they've done a fantastic job. Those All those broken Iron Hand rules that, that definitely should have been nerfed, they all made sense, made sense aesthetically. You know, they didn't, ha- they didn't give Iron Hand's you know, the ability to, uh, I don't know, infiltrate and do like right. crazy Raven guard things. They gave them the ability to be super durable and, you know, stand strong and, 
you know, shoot discipline, lay down discipline to fire, which is kind of what Iron Hands do. Um, you know, do you, do take... you mind if I oh, interject really quickly? Yeah, um, if you like Iron Hands or if you jumped on the Iron Hand bandwagon and you want to get some street cred by knowing something about them, the Wrath of Iron book, it's a standalone mm-hmm. book. It's, it's about the Iron Hands. It's super duper good. It's really, yep. really fun. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. So, Go ahead, go Sorry, I would just say like you're not wrong. I one thing I would say is that like the Space Marine Codex, uh, which I talked a little, I've said it a few times. Like there's this been evolution of Codex rules. Like like the everything about the Space Marine Codex is very Space Marines. It's very clear. Like all every I would say ninety nine percent of the rules. Like you read them and you're like, yes, this is what a salamander would do in the books. This is what an Iron Hand yep. would do in the books. It, it's it actually kind of comes down to a, like a the the danger sometimes in designing a game when you get too focused on 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 balancing like the lore aspect with the rules right because um when you look at the the space marines um generally they are the protagonists of the story they're often extremely super in every way uh so some so that's that's like th- the Iron Hands Codex supplement is kind of like that. This is the the slight danger you have when you go too far, right? When you say, "Yeah, this is all these cool things," without stopping to say, "Well, what does this do in a game that's designed around X stuff?" Right? Because um, you can say, you know, um, Iron Hands thing is that they're super stoic, they're disciplined at shooting, they're hard to kill. But then you go, okay, well, that's too uh, like that makes them really good at two things that the game revolves around, which is shooting and not dying. So they become good at killing and good at not dying, and now you have something that's like just too strong because of that, right? Yeah. So anyway, like it, but you're you're dead on, and it's that's kind of like the it's the one thing I've loved about this the Space Marine Codex, and I think why a lot of people um, prior to the nerfs were kind of just like. We're kind of, we're saying, well, just wait for Psychic Awakening. Once it comes out, everything will be like this. Um, and then it wasn't quite because it wasn't because there was you know still there's that protagonist thing I think that kind of that got in the way where like yes this is exactly how they are in the novels, but that's not a hundred percent what we want. We want like eighty percent of what they're like in the novels. Yeah, and, right. And you guys remember the funny uh, movie Marine uh, article that they did in White Dwarf for like if a oh yeah. If a space marine was as good on the tabletop as they as they are in the books, it was one space marine that was two thousand points, and you fight you fight your whole army. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's like that's a little like tongue in cheek, like tip of the hat to the fact that for dramatic effect in the books they're insane, and that if they were actually that good on the tabletop, it wouldn't be very fun. So that you know they're trying to like you know, find a happy medium, right? Like yeah. And one of the other things, to your to your point, Pablo, that you made earlier, one of the things that GW has done so well, and it's so British, is that there's all these uh, literal uh, literary allusions throughout it, like the 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 primarchs are like you know a Greek pantheon or the Norse pantheon, and uh, their names are tied into to uh, famous literature like Lionel Johnson. Um, of the Dark Angels, there's a famous poem called The Dark Angel written by Lion, Lionel Johnson, right? Mm-hmm. And there's all this stuff like that. Um, Conrad Cruz uh, is like Conrad Cruz from um, Apocalypse Now like or, or, or a heart in, uh, The Heart of Darkness. And they do all this stuff that really elevates it and makes it easy to relate to because they're, they're standing on the shoulders of giants. Like, you know, creative geniuses, they're like, taking some of the template and applying it. And that's what it makes it so easy to relate, especially 
to the space marine characters, right? Because they're 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 like you know godlike, and it, and, and, it makes and it so are fun. they taking anything? Because I'm pretty sure all the cultures you mentioned were owned by the British Empire at some point. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I admit, you know what? So yeah, maybe. <laughs> bop, bop. But what's the what's our outro music? Let's get that. <laughs> <laughs> Cue the curb your enthusiasm. Yeah. Anyways, uh, joking aside, um, I agree, Reese. I think they I think they do a phenomenal job of piggybacking off of stories um, and creating even more compelling characters and factions out of them. Um, so uh, moving to the I guess the fun conversation that is, uh, we always talk about it. You know what would happen if. Um, the rules actually represented the fluff, right? So you would have in one game of 40k, you would have, I think, a squad of space marines. Um, definitely not a captain or like they would be in orbit somewhere. Maybe, you know, it would be like a squad of space marines uh, fighting like thousands of Tyranids with some random monsters thrown in there. Um, wh- what I love about the, the fluff is there are so many different authors and there's so many different takes on on uh, the specifically space marines but on kind of factions in general uh, that you can look at one book use it as reference and go like oh space marines one space marine can kill you know an entire hive fleet you know or whatever right because because you know it's like uh, as you called it bolter porn um, but in another side if you look at the 30k books where space marines die like like ants you know and, and they're just like you've got angron just going through like thousands of space marines just like oh i swing my chain axes and he has buildings collapse on him and you know and he and just makes titan space steps on him he binge presses him off you know? yep. <laughs> right and and um there's other there's certainly other books where space marines kind of meet their match in like a random tyranid monster right and then, uh, by the way if you're an author i've just got one small gripe uh, I love 40k books. However, in general, I have a hard time understanding what monster the author is talking about because they refuse to use the name, right? So, like the first, like a, a pink horror, the first time a pink horror was introduced into the I 30k, hate it when they do that. they're like, "Oh, it's a fleshy, a fleshy pink hued monster attacks." You know, Euphrates the the um, remembrancer and you're like is that is that a pink horror i think it's a yeah, pink is this horror. something from pornhub it, yeah, did yeah. i buy this on amazon <laughs> like just m rated yeah i know i, I, I understand that. yeah it, i understand that we're getting the perspective of the characters and the character doesn't know what the fuck that thing is because obviously because obviously they don't the space marine wouldn't know what tyranid monstrosity that is you think he would though like it's his job to know this stuff well the (laughs) horus heresy stuff though like they didn't right that was the whole point but i like i see what you're saying like in the 40k books i agree like there's a lot of times where i'm like i wish they would just say it if it's the first time they encounter it sure fine right but like come on dude like you you the, the, the demons have been around since forever you think they'd have like the the Wikipedia page of uh, commonly <laughs> encountered up. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's a Necron Immortal. Got it. Yeah, yeah. when um, you're going through Space Marine training camp, you're supposed, you should know all this stuff. Yeah, but but they do a great job of telling you which company, specifically which squad ne- designation from that company, Devastator Company or whatever, is attacking Joe Schmo Planet, you know, blah, 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 or whatever, right? They let you know which Space Marines are fighting. Like, like oh, 
you know, I don't, I won't tell you what Tyranid monstrosity they're fighting, but I'll tell you the name of Brother Tibulus and, you know, the, how long he's been a space marine and what flavor of Bolter he likes firing, you know, on mm-hmm. weekends, right? Like, yeah. What's his, what's his insurance coverage look like? Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. I'll tell you all about this random space marine guy, but I won't tell you about the, the Tyranid monster that killed him, right? Um, anyways, that's just a small gripe. Uh, I'm glad I'm not alone. Uh, I know, I'm sure there's some Lexicanum, you know, worshippers who are going like, oh, well, Pablo, uh, actually, actually, it's from a actually, third <laughs> actually. To, to talk to that, um, it's actually one of the reasons why I enjoy the uh, Caiaphas Cain novels when they come out. They're, they're just a joy to read because Caiaphas Cain is such a, a, a loose canon, as it were. Um, but what they'll often do is when they describe the situation, um, like when the first time he meets like a Necron pariah, they they don't say it outright because he doesn't know, right? He's just like this this dude. But then they often do these interludes after after he explains something because all the Caiaphas Cain novels are being read by an Inquisitor. Um, and so she will like interject and be like, this is actually, uh, just for you to know, uh, like a Necron pariah. That's a blah, blah, right. blah. And, uh, and that you, like, just to your point, like I actually do enjoy when that happens. Cause it, it actually, sometimes they'll describe something. I'll be like, I think what they're trying to say is that's a gene stealer. Right. And, and you know why, do you know why we're so frustrated by that? And it's because, because of human nature, because we're, we're trying to draw the connection between the lore and how it's represented on the tabletop because we want yeah. to physically in our minds see what it looks like when a turvagon pops out babies right yeah. like in the mid in the middle of battle or like yeah. what what it looks like when uh, a heroic adventure might look like or just whatever whatever random thing you know and it, it, it is it's hard it's hard to write a rule that you can visualize happening on the tabletop in your head you know, it's 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 one of the hardest things to do, and it's actually you, why game designers are so valuable. Good game designers. Go ahead, Reese. All you need to do for like the literature is to insert some narrative device, right? Like, uh, and one of the things I love about anime is that they they don't have any qualms about just saying it. Like, I'm yeah. doing my flying dragon attack <laughs> that's only weak against perfect stone defense. I hope he doesn't do it. We're like. You just said it, dude. <laughs> so yeah. But they just are so on the nose. But it, they just like, don't care. Yeah. They don't care. But the thing is, is like when you're watching it, it really doesn't ruin it. Like you might laugh about it a little bit, but like you're just like, oh, okay. You gave me a little exposition just so that we can move along with what's the the the, the plot. But like if you if you really want to do it Western style and stick to your guns, just have like the, the Jeeves program in the Space Marines helmet that goes boop boop boop. Uh, uh, Imperial records indicate that this is most likely a pink horror that has been encountered several times in the past. Do 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 do. Easy peasy. Do 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 do. I hope they all yeah, and, have that. And, <laughs> and why wouldn't Jeeves. you have that? Yeah. <laughs> I love and, it. and I've read some Death Watch novels, or uh, I've listened to a Death Watch audio and I've read a Death Watch uh, short story. Um, and they didn't even do that for that, too. And I was like, the Death Watch is supposed to have, they're supposed to be like the Xeno spiders. Yeah, they Anyways, know everything other than the stuff they don't know. We we went off into the weeds here. Let's They're, good weeds, They're good weeds, <laughs> They're good weeds. They're not dandelions. <laughs> They're like um, a ragweed. They, no, they, they weren't weeds. They were um, plants that came out of the ground, kind of shriveled, uh, de- you know, definitely at the, grew at the, de- you know. Let's c- continue, Pablo. Continue. Anyways, Move. going on. Move. Went into the weeds about going into the weeds. So, um. Back to the fluff and, and uh, specifically what factions would 
do actually do well on the tabletop. So uh, let's set some ground rules. The first ground rule is that you're trying to make it so that they're even. Um, for instance, if you think that one space room can kill a thousand gaunts, you wouldn't put on the tabletop. You wouldn't put one space room in ten gaunts. You would you would try to make the battle as even as possible. And so, uh, all things considered, which faction do you think would do well if the rules represented everything? Represented if, if every single faction had its rules actually represented in the a fluff representation. Perfect fluff. Perfect fluff representation. There you go. I got there. You got it. You got it. Yeah. If you had a um, perfect fluff representation, then orcs or tyranids would yeah. would be the best because their their lore is that they are an unstoppable behemoth. Like tyranids specifically have devoured entire galaxies already. Yeah. So right, like if the, if you went full force with the tyranids or full force with the the orcs, you would have unlimited models. And you would, you know, you, it would be impossible to lose. Yep. Th- that's Agreed. Interesting. Okay. All right. Because, because I actually was thinking corn, um, and because uh, orcs, there's there's fluff that points to orcs worshiping corn. It's a thing that happens. Um, like one guy. There, well, there's like the, like one the one dude. Guy. There's yeah, one like there's planet a planet in the warp where their their corn keeps resurrecting him, but they they're not wor- worshiping him. Yeah, there's one orc worshiping, uh, one orc that might worship corn, um, because they joke about it in the orc codex, I believe it is, um, and that's about it. Well, there was a game that came out. Um, I, w- I want to call it. It was an orc-based game, but they were all they were all chaos change orcs, and the, the whole point of the game was that you had to fight over influence on this planet, and all of the orc warbands were. I, I can't. Goddamn, I forgot the name of it. I literally own it too. It's, it's down in my living room somewhere. I just have to dig it out. Anyways, the, it, it spoke to a band of, of four four orcs, um, each not representing a chaos god. I think they were all lovers of corn. They were uh, basically all chaos focused orcs, right? And then they fought. And then the whole point of the game was that you had to be the dominant orc faction. You won. Um, so I don't know if obviously don't know if that's canon or not. However. What I love about the 40k universe also is that everything is very, very uh, flexible. You know, uh, a space marine can fall to chaos. You know, a, a tyranid, the tyranids can fight whoever they want. It's like it's like a free for all. It's it's a it's an author's wet dream of place to, of stuff to play around with. Um, and so there's no rules, right? So um, I think within the kind of base rules of the way chaos work. I think that corn would ultimately win because uh, orcs would eventually orcs and tyrants eventually wipe everyone out. It would just be orcs and tyrants fighting for eternity. Um, but then orcs would just eventually fall to chaos. They wouldn't fall to Nurgle or any of the other chaos gods. And then you'd have uh, chaos would eventually win because chaos are awesome. That's you it. know, in the old fluff for chaos, uh, Pablo Corn was not this like mindless raging monster he was like the god of like martial prowess he was like Ares from the greek pantheon right like it was skill like a samurai could worship corn and he was hands down the most powerful chaos god like zinch broke his own staff of sorcery because he was afraid corn was going to come and kick his ass because <laughs> he made something that could actually challenge him um and that was you know back in the realm of chaos and stuff like that the really in my opinion much more interesting chaos source. so it's funny that you say that because that was the way that it was. Corn was the most powerful chaos god. Yeah, 
now the other the other kind of interesting thing is is like if you look in the fluff chaos are like directly tied to humanity right and that's why like a uh, spoiler yeah. alert for those of you who haven't read the 30k books and um, that's why the alpha legion kind of turns traitor was they saw the vision of of horse turning and so um they were basically like convinced that if a horse were to win he would eventually wipe out humanity and then thus that would wipe out chaos because all of humanity would be wiped out and chaos would have no people worshiping them so that, that's as far as i understand it that's kind of how i got that now the book was um legion legion by dan abbott alpha legion. yeah yeah and they they cover it a little like it wasn't that they'd be wiped out they'd get bored and leave um, oh, um, be- <laughs> just kind of like what happened in Age of Sigmar uh, for the end times, right? Like the chaos wins, they destroy everything except uh, Sigmar, who you know rides off on his comet horse, and uh, and then after you know either uh, five days or five billion years, because that's how chaos works for like time. Um, they were like, we're bored, we're done, there's nothing to do here, and they take off, and then everybody comes back, because Sigma's like, here's my chance, and he makes his own little world. Um, but similar concept, right? Um, so, like, Eldrad and his little uh, team show Alpha, Alpha Legion, Alpha Legion the, uh, the futures they assume will happen and why they need um, Horus to win. But, you know, uh, spoiler, spoiler, uh, Eldrad then realizes maybe he was wrong and decides to try and stop that whole thing. But, yeah, yep. that's a whole whole thing so are you trying to say that the alpha legion are trying to age of sigmar 40k yeah they uh, alpha wow. legion tried Bastards. to do the end times and they they messed it up they messed, don't they, they messed know up. how bad that would hit market shares for gm <laughs> <laughs> um anyways uh yeah it's very fun thank you for humoring me guys um i'm just gonna say tyranids it's not orcs it's tyranids 100 percent tyranids yeah like they the, the, the lore indicates that they have uh entire galaxies of biomass yeah. on the way like there's no i think it's that. um i want to say it's red tithe it's one of the Carcharodon books uh, i've talked i'm talking about them again robbie mcniven um there's a like the, it's all about a single like part of a tendril that is making its way into imperial space and like the whole lore behind the Carcharodons is uh in this misty past sometime probably just after the Horus Heresy, maybe longer after, no one knows because GW won't say, the, uh, the Karcharodons were sent off into the void uh, because they did something bad by their Primarch, and so they spend all their time in the void um, protecting the like Imperial space from what lies beyond. So they've been fighting Tyranids long before anybody else does. They mention it multiple times in their novels, like that, like Tyranids are no big deal to them. They deal with them all the time, but there's this point where this like one portion of a tendril is coming because there's a planet full of gene stealer cult that is kind of uh, beckoning them there. And they do a really good job in that book of showing just how terrifying like a Tyranid invasion is because like all, like the entire chapter is like spread out to try and stop this tendril. And they, they know they can't, they're like, we can slow them down for like an hour is the best we can do this entire chapter. Um, they're like, we're going to hold them as best we can. They send like one company down to the, to this planet to try and kill all the gene stealer cult, uh, to deal with the cult. But in like, the rest of the chapter is like we're gonna try to like deal with these guys, but it's not gonna work. We know it's not gonna work, um, and it's it's like the impending doom that he that he writes into that uh, that aspect of the novel is really well done because um, it kind of just shows just how terrifying nids are. 
Yeah, but Cabanda can just wipe out a whole High Fleet Trendle by Tendril by himself. Oh, that's only if he's on a Blood Angel moon, and he had help from like an entire uh, Blood Angels, uh, whatever company becoming uh, Death Company to help him out. Something like that. Anyways, um, yeah, there's uh, that's a really good point. I didn't think you guys would say Orcs and Tyranids, but um, all right. So uh, that is it for the episode. Uh, thank you both very much for coming in. And of course, at the end of every episode, we like to answer patron questions. So if you'd like to ask us questions, head on over to patreon.com slash chapter tactics. Consider supporting the podcast. We're going to get those questions right now. The first question comes from Mr. Patron Jason. Uh, why is the lion a traitor? Yeah. <laughs> this, this is a Peter question. Well, sure. he's just bad. Like I don't think he's a traitor. I think, I think that's a misnomer. I think he's just not smart. I think uh, he's emotionally not smart. His his EI, his emotional intellect is very poor. Um, like he's yeah, definitely he, like a like a, what a, gifted, what a he's a yeah. gifted Primarch, but he just is a dumbass. Yeah, yeah. They write about. It. I think that's the goal when you if you read the like the the Horace Heresy novels about him. Like they they talk a lot about how intelligent he is, and he knows it. He's like, oh, you know. Um, he's watching, there's one point he's watching like a ship battle and he's like, I've gone through all 10,000 iterations that uh, could possibly happen already. And it's been like six seconds. Um, but at the same time, he doesn't understand that Luther's angry at him. Um, cause to him, it's just like, oh, I gave him a job here, go back to Caliban and recruit people. And then doesn't talk to him for whatever it was like a hundred years or a thousand years. He just like ignores him. Right. And then he doesn't understand why, like, oh, I'm just telling him to do his job. Meanwhile, Luther's back home. Like, oh, he knows I tried to assassinate him. This is my penance. Uh, this guy's a dick. Um, <laughs> and, and that's like, that's literally like every encounter Lionel Johnson has with anybody. Like even with Conrad curse, when he's like kicking the shit out of him and he like gives him the backbreaker, um, like curse the whole time's laughing. He's like, ha, you just don't understand people. Like I've seen the future. I'm crazy. And he's like, well, I don't care. Boom. <laughs> and then like he gives Pertorabo, I don't know, like the it's worst weaponry weapon. in the world. Cause he's just like, Hey, we're still buds. Right. I should have been war master. He just, he's really smart, but doesn't understand people. Um, yeah. I agree. 100%. <clears throat> Anyways. <laughs> Good. Done. Question. Consider that question answered. Second one uh, from Mr. Patron Derek. Is there a way to do a good balance with a narrative play mixed with a competitive tournament? I've done several, but it always seems to exile one player type or another. Um, short answer, no. <laughs> no, there's not. There's uh, not. Yeah. If you have a group of players <clears throat> that are really <laughs> fluff-oriented, um, this, like... Because I've done both, right? Like, my background is in, like, narrative play. And uh, I transitioned to tournaments later in my career. And um, when you have a group of players, it's like, we're playing for fun. Any perception that you've stepped outside of that <laughs> box, which is impossible to define, the wheels come off the bus. Yeah. So it's just be just be honest. Be one or the other. Yeah. yeah. Just... I, we'll say... Uh, I'm sorry, guys. I... Um, I... Let me just say this, Peter, and then you can go in with your thing. But um, I will say that one one way to do it, you know, can get close to it, is to get a small group of like-minded players, maybe eight guys, you know, enough to make a small tournament, um, that all have the mindset of, hey, we're, we're trying to be casually competitive or narrative-focused. Um, the narrative guys at the LVO did a pretty good job of this, all things considered. Obviously, you know, there were growing pains. Um, but the thing with competitiveness is you always want to scale it up. That's kind of the general goal of competition. 
Um, and so once you scale it past that small group of guys, like it's just not going to work. As long as you're honest about it, it doesn't matter, right? Like you're like, <clears throat> hey, everybody, this week or this you know cycle, we're going to do a competitive uh, a narrative tournament, right? So everybody bring your best stuff. And if people yeah. are like, hey, I'm going to tap out, no big deal, man. We'll, we'll catch you on the next one. Right. And then on the next cycle, like, hey, guys, now we're doing a narrative narrative event. Everybody bring a thematic list. And if, you, if that's not for you, no big deal. Yeah, but yeah. He, I think he, the intent is he wants one where no one taps out. Where, like, right. like everyone's cool with it. Yeah, it's just not going to happen. Like, just bring up comp in any conversation and see, like, the, the anger yeah. that comes out. Unless you're in Australia. They love it. They, like... I, I, I say that, jo- like, Josh Diffie's going to message me after this, I know. But, um, <laughs> but uh, like, it's a, yeah, like, back uh, back home out east, I tried that a few times because we were very competitive when it came to Warhammer Fantasy. And I remember one day I was like, we're going to do a tournament. We're going to use Swedish tournament comp, um, which I signed scores to lists. Um, and, and I was like, if you get below a certain point score, there's certain awards you're just not going to be able to get. And everyone was cool with it. They're like, sure. So some guys did bring... Um, you know, comped lists based off of this like eighty-page document you had to read through to figure out what was what was legit in your army and what wasn't. Um, but then you get a and like the lower your score, the worse it was. And then you get a guy come in and his score's like negative six, and you're like, how? How? Why? What is yeah, wrong with you? He was like, like, I just want to win. Except the fact that I'm not gonna I, like I because the way if you understand game theory at all, like yeah. you understand that like it's just like taking an MSU list. When you hit the point of no return, you go all in. Yeah, so exactly. That's why those systems don't work, and they never yeah. have, and they never will. It's like, yeah. well, I have to get less. Uh, like, I can't get less than a hundred. Well, whatever. Then Here I might as well have negative a million at that yeah. point. Yeah, see what happens. It functionally makes no difference. <clears throat> yeah. All right. Now I- I'm going to answer this next question first because I've had a lot more time to think about it because it's a very good question. So, who's in your 40k character heist team? Think Ocean's Eleven or maybe Leverage. Uh, character archetypes would be the Grandmaster or the Mastermind, the Grifter, the Hitter, the Thief, the Hacker. I've already got my heist team ready to go. It's Malkador is going to one who puts it together because Malkador is the man. He knows how to put together anything. He's a master administrator. Uh, it would be Malkador, a Calidus assassin, a Dark El- or Dark Eldar agent. One of the, not a Dark Elder himself, but one of the agents, think like a John Grammaticus type, uh, and Perch Rabo. Done. They'd get mm. anything. They'd steal anything. Done. Mm-hmm. I think really you just need Conrad Kurz and or Korax, and then you're done. Just one of them? <laughs> Or I really both. think if you have both, they could steal oh the Emperor's throne out from underneath it. I'm pretty sure <laughs> you just need Cypher. I think we've proven that. Oh, yeah, and Cypher, right? Like, like you don't un- need a team. You just, like, Cypher, go you just do hand, that. You hand whatever you stole to Cypher, and no one will ever get it back. Yeah, I think that's the that's the team. Like, you don't need anybody else. You, you can have other people. He's probably going to find a way to just make them dead or something, um, or arrested. Wow. Um, but, yeah, Cypher, that's my what team. About- what about the emperor? He's a uh, husk. He's a corpse. Yeah, I mean, are you talking pre? I don't know. I'm, I'm pre corpse. I'm talking any. Uh, I guess 40k would be Malkador's ghost, not actually Malkador's, Malkador's ghost. ghost. <laughs> sure, he's floating around somewhere. All right, yeah. uh, patron. Next question from patron Tim. Do you think that a global campaign similar to the one run back in the day for the 13th Black Crusade can be balanced enough to draw in both narrative and competitive players? It didn't work when they did it. 
There was rampant yeah. cheating in every single one of those global campaigns. Like, they never worked. They were cool and they were fun and they were memorable. And for that reason alone, I think you should do them again. But, like, like you would have to build some really uh, relatively sophisticated software to make it even remotely. They have to put in a lot of effort. I mean, they've done yes. them. We've had them yeah. when 8th dropped, right? We had a couple. Yeah. Um, and they just they didn't receive a lot of, um, at least on our side of the pond, well, they didn't get a lot of... Uh, a, a lot of grant, like they didn't get any traction because no, there wasn't no. a lot behind it, right? So. Yeah, I'll I'll tell you why they didn't get any traction. It's because the consequences were lame. It, you were fighting over a system, like a planet, a system that no one had any physical con- or emotional connections to. Just like they just introduced this brand new planet, yeah. like you know, Planet X, Planet Joe Schmo. You know that every faction is fighting for some reason, and it's kind of formulaic at this point. Um, they do the same thing for for their spin-off narrative books. They're like they just introduce a planet, like okay, the relevant factions for the book all want to get onto the planet for some reason. Some name characters show up. No one dies, although they have killed a few people off. In general, they haven't no killed any dies. good people. Like Calgar's yeah. died like six times now, That's and true. he has the best apothecary in the world. I, I, well, I the, think chap- psychic- the chapter master of the Raven Guard died, but no one knew who he was or yeah, gave exactly. a shit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Vigilus Defiant showed up. Um, a Vigilus Defiant started with Calgar getting speared through the chest in the first page, and then again later on got destroyed, and then the third time he, he got it. It was good. Yeah, so, he figured anyway. it out. He's like, I just, I only <laughs> needed three hearts compared to most people's two, <laughs> and I needed to primaries. become primary. Oh, no. Like, no, he did become. Pr- Anyways, yeah, yeah, it, it's just, um, but yeah, I think, I think to answer your question, Tim, um, I think if if GW were to do it properly, it has to be something with more stakes than just fuck. Excuse my language, excuse me, than just, um, you know what like some Joe Schmo planet that no one cares about. It has to be, yeah. has to have real. And it has to have controls. Stakes. Yeah. But, but you also have to have control. I think it'd be really cool if they brought in like a lot of competitive players or a lot of players that are prominent in the community, like Nick Nana bodies and such. Told them all to pick a faction and then have just everyone, you know, do their thing. Um, I think something like that would be really cool. Telling everyone, getting everyone on board, telling them, Hey, this is for entertainment purposes, not for mm. smash face purposes. So build like fluff lists that are pre-approved or whatever, right? I don't or know. do like what they did with um, like Fantasy End Times. The first time they tried Fantasy End Times, not the not the good one, the one where they they backed off last minute, where they had the campaign, but you had to run a specific list, only like give actual players the like uh, control over what those lists are instead of making them up yourselves. Because uh, if you played Fantasy back in that day, um, the lists were grossly imbalanced <laughs> for like what armies got, like. The stuff that you had to run if you wanted to be orcs versus what you got for Empire was not not comparable. Um, that would be cool. Or do what they've already done. Put out a campaign that's absolute garbage and make it so that nobody cares. And then at the end be like, because you didn't care, Dante died. And then run another <laughs> one. And then people will be like, shit, I need to participate because I don't want what happened to Dante to happen to Pharos. Bam. Problem solved. Punish the player base for not caring. Easy peasy. If if I found out Calgar was killed in the fluff, I would definitely, definitely, definitely compete in the next one. Um, (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, yeah, obviously never going to happen, right? Like they've invested decades into these characters. For sure. It's like it's like Spider Man. Like he will never die. Even if he dies, he's not dead. He's taking a long nap, and he'll be back at some 
He'll be back in a moment. year. Give him a year. Yeah, he exactly. just needs a break. Yeah, they're even bringing back characters who were dead previously, like uh, Gillum and such, right? Yeah. So. Oh yeah, the, all uh, of the all of them will come back. It, yeah, I don't know how long it'll take. Conrad Kurz will unkill himself. Uh, the, the Ferris Manus's head will somehow reattach itself. Listen, they just did it with Gazgul. That, that's yeah, it's going to be exactly. Gazgul's Mad Doc. He's going to be like, oh, I found this dude on this planet, and I just put even his head though, back on. Even when uh, one of the Chaos Primarchs has been using uh, Ferris Manus's skull as like an ashtray, yeah. somehow, some way, they'll regrow his brain and inject his memories into it. Yeah. Somehow, well, I mean, and he'll be... Fabius he'll... Bile did it like 18 times in the lore. He'll just do it again, and this time Fulgrim won't kill him. Probably exactly. No, no, exactly. To be fair, when they brought Gilliman back, it was really freaking cool. It was... Uh, uh, did you... Uh, you know what? You know what? Get out of here. I thought it was... <laughs> I mean, it's I it's. Who uh, cares? So just embra- embrace it. Yeah, like, just do it. Just bring everybody em- back. Embrace the madness. Who cares? It's inevitable. Like, and I'm I'm not saying this because I I know I'm. This is just me, my opinion. But like, who gives a shit? I want to have Conrad Curse. I don't care that he committed suicide via the Calidus assassin. Who cares? Bring him back. It'd be awesome to put that model on the table. Give That's- me Elanius Pius, but make him just like a Cadian guardsman model with nothing special. But he has a rule that he can't die. Like he just comes back every round, no matter you kill him. I'd, I'd I love it. I'd laugh. I'd play him in every list, and I'd laugh the whole time. And I want the one Terminator who they have since retconned, I believe, out. The one that like convinced the Emperor that Horus had finally gone too far. The guy who walked in, he's like, "What's going on? Blah, I'm dead." And then the Emperor's like, "That's it, Horus. Now I'm gonna kill you." Yeah, you I made want a, that guy. You made a mistake. Yeah. Well, the they retconned it to be a Terminator who just like stumbles in, like, "What's going on?" Yeah, I think they retconned that to be Olanius Pius, right? Because then they say like, "Oh, he's was the one it that, okay?" Yeah. yeah. So he and he's just like the the uh, perpetual that was a guardsman. Um, so. But do it. Bring him in. Alanius Pius. He doesn't have to have a cool model because that's not the point. <laughs> He's, He's a just a dude. <laughs> yeah. In the lore, that's all he has is a Laz pistol. <laughs> like, just let him and uh, just can't die. And he's just cute. Like, I would love it. Ugh. Some, mm. These are the types of characters I would love to play. Anyway. Yeah. Um, I'm the minority. Hey, I know. <laughs> I have 50 Sisters of Silence. Patron <laughs> hey, hey, Evan. Um, ask us, ask us a question. We probably won't have, we probably won't be able to answer live. This is, um, he says he knows it's subjective, but he wants to rank the top 10 and the bottom 10 codexes. Um, that is a whole episode in itself. However, that's, that's knowing 20 codexes off the top of your head. That's (laughs) That's a lot. What's really funny is he asked for a bottom 10 and a top 10, but there's also like a middle 10 too. (laughs) There's so many codexes, there's so many factions. Um, uh, but instead, uh, why don't you each give me, uh, codex that is uh, a good codex that everyone's undervaluing, and a codex that's overhyped that should probably actually belo- belong to the bottom ten. Ooh. Um. Yeah, I'll, I'll go first, Pete, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, Tyranids are underhyped. They're super duper good right now. Um, yeah. That's what I've been playing, and especially if you look at the data, if you mix, if you sprinkle in some GSE, you got yourself a stew, baby. But mm-hmm. I've been playing Pyranids, and I feel like I can fight anybody and a lot of people are still stuck in the mentality that they suck they don't in my opinion so that they're they're um uh, the diamond in the rough i guess yeah. overhyped uh overhyped less prepared on this one i don't know I, I think tower probably overhyped right now like a lot of people are really fearing them they've been doing really well but they haven't 
had like a, a, a sea change in the way that they play. So I think if you understand how to defeat Tao, how to play them, um, you're in the same boat you were before. But a lot of, of the quote-unquote pro, pro players are talking about how with the diminishment of Space Marines, Tower rising to fill that gap. Yeah, I think Tau is my answer to the the overhyped right now. They've got decent stats, but the, like no one is doing anything amazing with them that I've seen. Um, like when I look at the stat, when I look at the players that are playing them, look at the stats. I'm watching the the current like quarantine streams uh, that I've been watching, even seeing like Siegler bring, bust out the Farsight Enclave stuff that he did recently on stream. Um, like it didn't look like his gameplay changed dramatically. I'm sure he would tell you that. Like, go into great detail about how it had, but it didn't. Like the uh, and watching other people's play it. Like Reese is right. There's there hasn't been a drastic change in how they play, um, and uh, that's probably to their detriment. Um, as to over uh, underhyped, I mean, I do like the Tyranid answer, um, but I've been kind of saying that for a while, um, especially spe- the last few weeks of da- like good data we had where they, uh, you know, top four at all sorts of events. Um, so I want to be a little bit different there at least. I would have to say underhyped. Beep boop beep boop. What about Astro Militarum? Like, I've been I seeing, think I've been seeing not only Brandon right, who always does well, but other players taking a ton of Lehman Russes after Psychic Awakening, and then yes, uh, I think like I think that, that I was like a lot of my I've I've bought like seventy uh, Scions because I love them so much. Um, I have a whole I, I, Scion army. Yes, I, yeah. I, I feel the love. <laughs> yeah, it's very like they became very good, and I just like the models, so it's it helps. Um, so yeah, I think that's a good. I think that's also another one where I think they're a little underhyped. Um, Sisters of Battle, like the hype is real, and but it's from a very small group, which is what's interesting. Like you talk to like the five guys that play Sisters of Battle, and they are the greatest army that's ever been made ever. Um, when you talk to them, and then you see like Matt Robertson, who's been like ripping up the UK scene with them, and talk to the people that play against them, and, and it seems to be like a legit thing, but it's just odd that I haven't seen like the certain quality of player that you would expect, because uh, you know often when an army um, is amazing, all these top p- players will jump to it, and you haven't really seen that with Sisters, so I'm I'm curious to see where that goes. But looking at these like Bloody Rose lists that people are making. Um, that Matt Robertson risk with the triumph of St. Catherine is amazing. I love every second of it. Um, but yeah, I think that would be where I'd go guard or, or sisters of battle, probably under hyped for what they can deliver. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, to make this real brief, I think, a uh, codex in the top 10, that wouldn't be in most people's top 10 is thousand sons. I think thousand sons belong somewhere in the top 10, obviously not very high, maybe seven or eight, but um, Ooh, I think I don't they're know. very underrated. Oh. Their new uh, the new possessed bomb list uh, uses like majority thousand sons and it's pretty solid. Thousands are they're a good codex. They they've yeah. anyways and then under uh, overrated I think one codex or faction that I always see consistently make bad players top lists or bad content creators top lists is knights. Um, I, I people always it's because they they have that feel badsy you know you either kill them or you don't you know that's the same thing with tau. Um, but yeah, I think people overhype knights still. I still see people saying like, "Oh, knights are broken." Like they're really bad right now. They're they're, they're really they're really terrible. bad. They belong in the bottom ten. But I think you will always for the, you know, to the end of forty k, you always see people putting knights in their top ten list somehow because of the nature of the way that you play. All right, 
uh, Nick wants to know what characters should go Primaris next. What characters won't be making it to a new edition? Um, real quick, if you could pick one character to get Primaris, what, who would it be? Easy. Captain Sicarius. Moving on. <laughs> Vulcan Captain... Histan. Vulcan didn't get Primaris. You're right. Nope. No, they yeah. made up a new guy, Adrax Agatone, who's a boss, actually. But anyway. Yeah, no, it's it's funny that they made that choice that they they created entirely new characters t- instead of taking like a tried and true like Vulcan mm-hmm. and making him primary. Like that, I I thought that was a very interesting choice. This probably came down to like they, the sculptor put different war gear on him, and they're like, can't be yeah. Vulcan. <laughs> yeah. Vulcan would never use a hammer. What's wrong with you? And they got really mad at the sculptor, and he was like, "I'm sorry." I just He's like, "I'm so cool. sorry." He's I'll have a prawn yeah. and mayonnaise sandwich. Got yeah. Now. Oh no. no. Uh, Patron Nathaniel <laughs> wants to know what loyalist primark would you think could return at this point? Um, next loyalist primark. Um, so I'm always. Many. I always say the yeah. lion. I, I always just say the lion. They've been setting up the lion for years. Yeah, lion so. or rust because they've been setting yeah. them up pretty frequently. Since last edition, both of yeah. them have been hinted at coming back. Yeah. yeah. And the big thing with Russ, the reason why I want it, I need it actually to be Russ, is because um, <laughs> I, I hope you understand. GW, if you're listening to this, I have a primal need for Russ to come back because you guys wrote Two Spears, the short story. Uh, excellent short story, by the way. If you have five minutes, where just did you read, read this story, Peter? <laughs> it, it, it's, it's two spears. It was like uh, the. Um, it was part of the. I think it was Is this last year's fan fiction. No, it was last year's Christmas. You know what they do that like fourteen days. What do they call that? You know, calendar that you get chocolates from. Is there a calendar involved too? <laughs> yes. Anyway, they did a short story called two, "The Two Spears," and it's about the two spears that the emperor made, um, and they dock. But don't, don't just skip that page. Cause it, but it's about Valdor, uh, Constantine Valdor, and Lehman Russ, and it shows that when really Ru- when Russ disappeared. Valdor disappeared because their fates have been intertwined. So when Russ comes back, Constantine Valdor is going to come back, and that's all that matters to me. I don't care about your stupid Primarchs, everybody. Constantine Valdor <laughs> needs to come back because he's the greatest thing that ever happened to 40K. The end. Bam. If, Done. if Russ does come back, I want him so badly to be old man Logan. Oh, Russ, that'd be so cool. Right? Yeah. Like, just yeah. grizzled. He's been on this emotional journey comes back and he, like that would be just that'd be He's so got an good. eye patch yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, be yeah. badass yeah absolutely um <laughs> finally last question patron jesse wants to know what characters do you love and what characters do you love to hate we know mine we i've i just went just, on a we diatribe just, well why don't, why don't we talk about characters we love to hate why don't we talk about character that that every time up uh, so for me erebus basically every word bearer oh, erebus uh, every, is so stupid yeah, I, I just I hate them every time I see them. Any just any word bears, honestly, any chaos space spring character in general. Every Ooh. time I read about them on a on a page, with the exception of uh Savitar and Savitar's cool. The Night Lords trilogy guy. All, all the um, all the lieutenant, the captain guys like Savitar, Karn the Betrayer. They're um, they're so interesting and so yeah. so. Cool. Oh, I hate Karn though. I don't. I don't. Oh no! If you listen to the newer uh, material about him, when he's like. He's mad, but it's like a sophisticated. Oh, it's so good. I no. his portrayal in 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 even the Horace Heresy novels has been excellent. Uh, like in Betrayer and some of the other yeah, books. It, anyway, yeah, yeah. I, I, the uh, he was oh, he was good in the. I kind of I kind of liked more less him more the dialogue he had between um uh the Val Gorbach guy that he was talking. Yeah, his name. Yep. Yeah. Um, obviously did it, but I don't know, man. I'm just not. 
the the chaos space marine like whiny you know false emperor conference just doesn't do it for me none of that stuff just like ugh, you lost get over it Sivitar is amazing because he's like the um um spike from um cowboy bebop like yeah he just doesn't give a shit about any he just accepts reality for what it is he doesn't care (laughs) and he's just such an amazingly cool character yeah yeah all right well thank you so much for listening if you've made it all the way don't forget to uh go to frontlinegame.org and buy stuff uh also if you want to catch more action from reese more hot takes reese where can they find you at they can find me at my house where I haven't left in days and I'm losing my mind. Oh, just mm-hmm. kidding. You can find us at Signals from the Frontline uh, every Wednesday now. Still no internet at Frontline Gaming. One day we will, and uh, you can catch us there. Yep, and uh, you can find that on the Frontline Gaming Network where you can find a variety of 40K-focused podcasts um, like 40K Stats Center, The Art of War, Signals from the Frontline, and Chapter Tactics. And then finally, Peter... Yes. Where can they bother you other than on a podcast? Well, uh, 40kstats.com. The website still works. I'm going to be doing a couple updates to it here. I've done some background stuff I just haven't published yet um, in my uh, quarantined existence. Since there are no events to to cover, I've been focusing on um, updating and upgrading some of the statistics I've been running just to make them a little... um, a little uh, more accurate when it comes to these times where we're, we're short on data. Um, so I've been working with some people on that. And um, I know you said not on a podcast, but uh, Val and I are uh, guesting on The Honest Wargamer uh, every... What's tomorrow? By Tuesday. our recording day. Tuesday, oh, we'll record. mor- uh, Tuesday morning. Yeah, every we'll Tuesday morning. At like 5 a.m. my time, I'm waking up to talk to uh, Rob, the Honest Wargamer, about just 40K stuff and love and um, death and robots and things. Nice. Great. Great series. Great series. Okay. It's beautiful. All right. Thank you so much for listening. You all, of course, are all the best listeners in the world. And as always, have a good one. Bye-bye. <laughs>